2: Plan savings with three lines of T Mobile Essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. It was
0: clear from the start that Stewart's trial would be complicated. He gave himself up immediately, as we learned in the last episode. But even so, and even with the camera footage of the shooting itself, the trial, which didn't start until spring of 2004, would drag on for months once it was finally underway. The prosecution argued that this was an open and shut case, that Stewart was a bully who'd finally taken things too far. But the defense maintained that Stewart had been driven to his actions by Gene Hillary's overzealous fixation on the Santos Linguisa sausage factory. That was coupled with Stewart not being in his right mind the day of the shooting due to undiagnosed mental health issues related to repeated head injuries sustained throughout his life. Both sides argued for months, but there could only be one conclusion. I could try to maintain some suspense, but this case is over two decades old. If you haven't Googled it by now, I'd be surprised. If not, I'll keep the results to myself until the end. From KCBS Radio and Odyssey, I'm Natalia Gurevich, and this is The Sausage King. Episode 6, The Past is Fair Play.
3: Certain things I remember as if it was yesterday. Like what? Well, how difficult it was to get the trial going,
4: mm-hmm.
3: number one, because the defense attorney was an obstructionist. What does that mean? Um, so, for example, there were multiple over 20 videos and I think over what 5,000 photos Mm -hmm. because not only were was the state police city police city police involved but the um, feds were involved too because of the two federal agents so I mean it was videoed beyond belief and he objected to every photograph, every video. So it took us it took us a while, maybe 3 4 months just to get through all the photographs, all the evidence. I like to start a trial with letting the attorneys know what's coming in, what's not coming in so that they know they can prepare, they know, you know, that kind of stuff. So but and then during the trial, there was an objection to everything. <laughs> so.
0: That's Judge Vernon Nakahara. We know him. He's been in and out of this podcast more times than I can count by now. He was the judge on the case and revealed that my cousin, the owner of a small hot dog chain, testified at Stewart's trial. Vernon was one of my first interviews for this podcast in August of last year. We met at his house in Oakland and opted to sit in his lush backyard because it was such a nice day. At a patio table, we watched as his spry, gray and white cat, Nelly caught a songbird in her surprisingly strong grasp, only to let it fly away seconds later. Vernon was appointed as a judge in Alameda County in 1989, then elevated to superior court judge in 1995. While he mostly oversaw family court cases, divorces, custody battles. By the time Stewart's case landed on his desk, he dealt with three or four other capital cases. But what stood out to him at the time, and even now, all these years later, was the video.
3: Well, let me let me describe it this way. Uh, you know the basic facts of the case.
5: Yeah.
3: They want to inspect. He won't let them. Mm-hmm. Turns on the video. He starts loading his gun. And he comes out, and he shoots all three of them in the waiting room. And then he goes out after Old Willis, uh, who is waiting for the police to come because they had called the police, try to get him to cooperate. Mm-hmm. And then so he starts running after Old Willis and uh, doesn't doesn't shoot him. Comes back and then puts another bullet in their heads. And that's the one, I think, the jurors thought. No, that's not right. Mm-hmm. And, and you could see it on the video. And, you know, the joke around the judges was, well, anybody can try a case with a video. Nakahara, what's the big deal here? <laughs> you know, uh, it's sort of, you know, sick humor, but that video is awful. Because when when we showed it on the video in front of the jurors, I mean, <laughs> There were fifteen jurors crying. Yeah. I mean it was awful. Yeah, and you know, I come, uh, I've seen some pretty tough cases, and boy, that choked me up a well, little. That and uh, during the penalty phase, when the victims came in to testify about yeah. the impact, the victim impact statements, mm-hmm. it was awful. <laughs> I gotta tell you.
0: Hearing the statements from Jean Hillary's daughters and the family of the other victims was especially hard for Vernon. He said you could hear a pin drop in the courtroom when they were speaking, as well as when Earl Willis gave his testimony, which we heard last episode.
3: So, yeah, it was uh, long and arduous. I think it was the longest death penalty case I've had.
5: Really?
0: I'm sorry to hear that.
3: Because usually it's a lot shorter. Yeah. You know, it's a lot shorter.
0: So, you know, while the while the proceedings are going on, I'm I'm kind of curious what it was like every day to to hear you know new evidence, new arguments. Uh, did your perspective shift at all during the proceedings?
3: Well, not really. Mm-hmm. I mean, because we had such a long pre-jury session to go over all the evidence, you got to look at everything. Mm-hmm. Got to see the video, you know stuff like that. Um, the perspective is, you know, I I can say he's guilty, he's not guilty. It's not my decision. Mm. Okay. Um, and I go in with an open with an open view about, you know, prosecution screws up, they screw up. The Fed screws up, they screw up. You try to protect them both. Um, But, you know, in death penalty cases, you usually get pretty good lawyers. So they're not green. They they know how to, they know the evidence code. So it makes it a lot easier, Mm -hmm. (laughs) a lot easier, believe me. You get some, you know, greenhorn attorneys in there and it's so hard. Uh, And you have to be, I'm a patient man and you have to be so patient. But with those death penalty cases, they're usually pretty good lawyers.
0: The attorneys on the case were Paul Hora and Jack Leitner for the prosecution, and Michael Ogle and Jason Clay for the defense. I was able to speak to one from each team for this podcast. Paul Hora is still around in Alameda County, now an assistant district attorney at the East County Hall of Justice. He popped up briefly in our first episode when I was summarizing what happened. He was also one of my first interviews for this story. When he agreed to meet me, he invited me over to the Wiley W. Manuel Courthouse in Oakland that has its own recording studio in its basement. After walking through a short, subterranean maze to get there, we were led into a soundproof room, equipped with everything needed for the obligatory press conference or TV appearance people in his role have to endure. Paul has the polished air of someone who's done countless media appearances in his life, and this wasn't even his first appearance for this case. He'd grown up eating the linguisa at family barbecues and for breakfast on weekends. But he didn't know much about the family itself until the shooting hit the news. Then he was assigned the case.
2: No, I really didn't know anything about the family because I was just a kid. Um, I just ate the linguiça. And then my next sort of connect, other than eating the sausage, my next um, sort of connection or intersection with the whole factory and the family was when I was assigned the case okay I did obviously I, I remember reading about it and seeing it on TV the mm-hmm. murders um, because it was big news yeah. when it happened um, but until I was assigned the case that's when I really you know opened, it opened me up to the um, family and I learned all mm-hmm. about them okay very well actually.
0: I mean, I I can imagine.
2: Um. Cases like that are pretty intense.
0: Yeah, can you kind of... consume you. Yeah, can you expand on that a little bit? What made this case so different from, say, the others you'd handled so far in your career? Well,
2: it was the first capital case, Mm -hmm. first and only capital case, actually, that I've ever tried. Mm -hmm. And so the case went... It was a little unusual because there was both federal and state jurisdiction, and... Ultimately, the district attorney at the time, Tom Orloff, um, and the US attorney at the time made an agreement that he would be prosecuted here first mm-hmm. in state court. And then it was going to, the, the plan was it was going to be prosecuted in federal court mm-hmm. after the state court prosecution. Because the rules of double jeopardy allowed that to happen but the reverse isn't true. In other words, it couldn't be prosecuted in federal court and then prosecuted in California. Mm -hmm. So the agreement was made to prosecute the case here first in Alameda County. Um, Jack Leitner, who was a U.S. attorney was assigned to the case from the U.S. attorney's office, deputized as an Alameda County deputy district attorney and was my partner on the case. Mm -hmm. Um, it's the only case I've ever had where I actually had another lawyer help me
0: I asked Paul to describe the security footage again because I hadn't been able to get my hands on it myself and he'd had to view it several times over the course of the case I figured his memory would be fairly accurate even 21 years later
2: Uh, it's in black and white and there's no audio Mm -hmm. Um, I mean it's just horrifying watching it it's it's unbelievable. Um, it begins with him climbing out of off a ladder in his office because he had a false ceiling and the video recorder was actually in the ceiling. So the video comes on as he's replacing the tile where that would have, that hides the VCR. And then he steps down the ladder and walks around the office and walks kind of anxiously for a few minutes. Um, And then you can see there are two, there might've been four cameras, but I know at least two i I'd have to look at it again. It's been a while. Mm -hmm. The the point, the main view of the video is there's a video in his office so you can see what he's doing. And then his office is just a few steps away from the, I'll call it the customer area or the. Showroom where customers walk in and purchase product and you can see the inspectors just waiting unknowingly for him on the second video screen
5: Mm
2: -hmm. and um, he loads up three guns and walks out there and guns them down Mm -hmm. and then realizes there's a fourth inspector outside and he runs outside that's not on video and shoots chasing the fourth inspector down the street that was Earl Willis who worked for the state of California and then he comes back in to the showroom and the three inspectors are on the floor. I remember at least Gene Hillary, who was the woman inspector, was still moving
5: mm-hmm.
2: and he reloads the gun and shoots each one of them in the head.
5: Mm-hmm.
2: It's, uh, it's completely, it's just words can't describe it. Yeah. It was awful.
0: Because the video was available, it made the charges levied against Stewart pretty cut and dry. The main charges were three counts of murder with a special circumstance of multiple murder. There was also the special circumstance of killing a government official. And there was a count of attempted murder on Earl Willis. All of these charges made Stewart eligible for the death penalty.
2: The fact that that he committed the crime and pulled the trigger was cut and dry, yes. Um, There was no question about that. The question becomes his mental state at the time he committed the crime. And whether or not that was first-degree murder or second-degree murder or a manslaughter, potentially, Mm -hmm. I I was convinced that it was a first-degree murder.
0: Paul's job was to convince the jury to agree with him that this was first-degree murder. In order to do so, all of Stewart's life, everything, was fair play. So then, my next question is: You know, what what did you learn about what was going on in his life that kind of helped you facilitate getting that those twelve people to to make that decision?
2: The the crime itself, I thought, carried enough was was just so powerful and such a an awful act, and it was clearly premeditated. Um, He had no remorse. Um, I thought that was the biggest or the most significant factor, I think, that weighed in favor of his punishment, ultimately, by the jury. Um, There was some evidence of violence in his past, Mm -hmm. and now I'm stretching on memory here, but Mm -hmm. he there was at one point he owned a piece of property in San Leandro that— he ran a. He used to work for Oakland Scavenger Company, which was a garbage company, like waste management. Back in the day, he left that company and started his own business, where he hauled junk, and eventually he was kicked out of or not allowed to dump his junk at the waste management facility. So what he started to do was dump his junk on his property. And there was an older man who lived next door to that property who got tired of living next to a bunch of junk and one day was taking photographs of the junk over the fence. Stewart saw him do that, and Stewart went over and confronted the man and uh, punched him a few times in the head, seriously injured him. I want to see broke his jaw or maybe knocked him out. There, there are definitely court records on that too. Mm-hmm. Um, and broke the man's camera. So I remember that act of violence that was introduced at trial
5: mm-hmm.
2: to prove that he had committed violence in the past
5: mm-hmm.
2: um, or handled his... It was sort of a pattern for him that when he would get angry and things weren't going his way, he would, if he had to, resort to violence.
0: That was a major event that stood out to Paul about the trial. The violence Stewart had demonstrated in beating up his elderly neighbor, Clifford Berg. We learned about that in episode four, when Stewart tried to run for mayor. There was also some discussion about what Stewart's mental health issues might be, and if there was any evidence he was being treated unfairly by the USDA. But. Ultimately, Paul came to the conclusion that Stewart was responsible for his actions. And that was the end of it.
2: He had written several emails and talked to several people about killing the inspectors and grinding them up and making sausage out of them. We had some emails, actually, that he had written Mm
5: -hmm.
2: in the months leading up to the murders um, where he had fantasized about committing crimes. Um, And... You know, nobody really took them very seriously, um, but unfortunately, you know, he ended up doing what he did. Mm-hmm. But he sort of, I don't know if spoiled brat is the right word, but he just, that's my impression of him. He was sort of a bully.
0: One man who disagrees with Paul is, of course, Stewart's defense attorney, Michael Ogle. Michael's courtroom presence has been described in past media coverage and by Judge Nakahara himself as a bit on the pushy side, perhaps a bit aggressive. When I interviewed him, I didn't find this to be the case. Instead, the man I met with seemed passionately dedicated to his case and his client and still felt strongly about the course of events that occurred decades later. Now semi-retired and based in Sacramento, Michael occasionally offers his services as a consultant. He is thin, wiry, with curly salt and pepper hair that he had on that day pulled back into a ponytail. He has a sharp gaze and a firm, deliberate manner of speaking. Like any good attorney, he came prepared. But before we got into it, first things first. Michael made it very clear at the beginning of the interview what his position was in regards to his client even 21 years later.
6: I'm not allowed to tell you anything about my impressions of, about Stuart or anything that was communicated between us or confidentially in any other context in the case.
0: While Michael refused to divulge information about his impressions of Stuart or what the two of them discussed, he did go into detail about what he learned about Stuart's background, which ultimately helped inform his main arguments for the case.
6: I mean, we have to understand the context of this case. This was, case was not a case... Uh, about who did what, right? I mean, Stuart obviously killed these people. The question was why the little in- in- intricate details about what was happening at the time, uh, and if we ever got to uh, a punishment phase to kind of understanding some of Stuart's background, which led him to the the more uh, macro why as opposed to the micro why, um uh, and so we did uh, investigate and present the narrative of uh, the story of essentially Stewart's life, his family background.
0: And Michael outlined a lot of what we already know. And he drew some of the same conclusions that I have as I've been working on this story the last several months.
6: Their linguiça was revered. Uh, among the records that I reviewed were mail orders and correspondence from... Uh, People all across the country um, who would ask for their ling- or order their linguisa and actually there were a lot of people upset after this happened uh, because they could no longer get the linguiça. um So uh, it was a um, how should we say it? that the factory was a source of pride, great pride in the family. Uh, from the outside, physically, it didn't look like much. I mean, it just looked like a, you know, a tiny shop in kind of a quasi-industrial part of town. Um, um, the, anyway, but the point being that... Um, so Herman Tweedy was a, quote-unquote, big man. He was, had uh, a lot of popularity, identity... Tweedy was known for uh, having affairs. He was known for uh, not giving Stewart or probably even Stanley, his younger brother, a whole lot of love. Um, the big thing uh, uh, that he did with his kids, other, uh, the two big things he did with his kids were, one, have them work at the Linguisa factory long hours after school. Um, so Stuart was doing that from a very early age. Uh, and two, uh, they would have Sunday afternoon boxing matches on the lawn in front of the house. And so Tweedy really valued, A, working for the family business, and B, showing how tough you are in these family boxing matches. And so the way Stuart was raised... Uh, those kind of became the two most important things. Uh, it, he, um, as I said, Tweety didn't give Stuart or probably Stanley a whole lot of love, and Stewart was always trying to earn his love or, or um, you know, make his father proud of him, if you will. And that reality was part of why he ended up killing these people.
0: This was part of Michael's strategy, to show the jurors how Stewart's childhood shaped him into this person, who was trying and ultimately failing to uphold his family's legacy. The second part was asserting Stewart had endured multiple head injuries over the course of his life.
6: There's one thing his father was proud of him for, because he was really good in, in the family boxing matches with his older brother and with dad um and at some point Stewart actually got in the ring and so that's where he suffered the concussions was in actual more real boxing matches if you will
0: so he was like an amateur boxer for a time yes really okay so from what ages or how um long?
6: i think like late uh late teens early adult probably right after high school
0: did he have like a, a name or, or something like that?
6: No, I mean he never, as far as I can cons- recall, never really had any great start. I mean, he never fought in uh, in a um, a uh, uh, a big venue. Yeah. You know, it's kind of more like you know A.A.U. type stuff or
5: okay,
0: interesting. So. The five concussions were sustained during that period, and
6: I mean. Well, t- not just from that. He also had an s- extremely severe auto accident.
0: Oh, really? Okay. When was that?
6: Uh, that was closer in time to the the killings. Um, <laughs> like many people, well, all right. Nowadays, we have a. S- small portion of the population too big of a pop- portion of the population that is you know anti is you're not going to tell me to wear a mask you're not going to tell me to get a vaccine uh, when in the 70s uh, uh, in 80s um, we had a portion of the population that wasn't too into seatbelts <laughs> okay and motorcycle riders uh, one's helmets not into wearing helmets right anyway Stuart, Uh, at least for a portion of his life, was not wearing seatbelts. So he was driving on the freeway one day, kind of in rush hour traffic, um, being a little aggressive and trying to go fast and changing lanes without a seatbelt, and he had a bad crash. And you have a bad crash going 65 miles an hour and you're not wearing a seatbelt, bad things happen. So he uh, smashed his head on uh, against the windshield, uh, lost consciousness, went to the hospital, uh, and so that was another example. And um, um, he did, in fact, uh, have lingering physical, permanent brain injury, uh, traumatic brain injury that was documented and presented at the trial.
0: A head injury after a crash is pretty common. But I was curious how an amateur boxing career might have impacted Stewart's behavior even before the shootings. I spoke with Dr. Carlin Center, the Director of Primary Care Sports Medicine Service at UCSF, about how concussions caused by sports injuries like boxing can impact mental health and behavior. Other sports, like football, hockey, and wrestling, are high-risk sports for concussions. But boxing hasn't been studied to the same extent.
1: But we know that boxing uh, is, you know, that boxers um, are at risk for, uh, obviously, head trauma and uh, long-term neuropsychological uh, problems from head trauma, okay. uh, no doubt. Um, so so it's, it's definitely a high-risk sport with respect to concussion.
0: Okay. So I'm kind of wondering, would you say that the understanding of how to best treat these types of injuries in the, in the short term has improved in recent years? Yeah, I think
1: we've learned so much about concussion uh, in the last, say, 15, 20 years in terms of how to treat concussion, how to, um, how to make sure that Someone's recovered before they go back.
0: But even with all of the advancements of the last 20 years or so, there's still a lot of uncertainty as to how concussions can affect cognitive function.
1: And the vast majority of people, we don't think that they have brain damage from, from uh, concussion, um, which is an amazing thing about brain injury in general, is that the brain has amazing healing capacity.
5: Okay. and
1: So the vast majority of people we don't think have any long-term consequences from concussion, whether they've had one or three or five. Um, The studies um, that raise concern about chronic neuropsychological problems after head injury, um, for the most part, these involve athletes who suffered um, thousands, maybe tens of thousands of hits uh, to their head, neck, or body. And so... It's, a, it's probably a, a, a different phenomenon. You know, when we start talking about the phenomenon of chronic traumatic encephalopathy, mm-hmm. which is, um, you know, what, what boxers have been shown to develop from head trauma and what um, a number of professional football players and hockey players have been found to have on brain autopsy. Chronic traumatic encephalopathy or CTE, um, for the most part, has been found in um athletes who've had a lot of collision in their sport uh for many many years for the most part you know even into a professional career so it's um we we haven't seen that in folks who are recreational athletes nor in people who've you know played high school middle school sports um so we don't mm-hmm. think we think that the vast majority of people who have concussion, sport concussion, uh, will not have long-term problems from
0: it. Okay, okay, that's, well, that's definitely good to know. <laughs> A little, little relieving. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So then, yeah, I, I guess then where where do you start to see that that occur? Like you say, like you know, thousands of little hits. But does it does it have to be like of that magnitude or can it can there be damage, you know, say from, I don't know, like three concussions or four con- concussions, right. five concussions, you know?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. I, it's an unanswered question um, and under active study. So um, there's a big study going on right now uh, in the NCAA and Department of Defense looking at um athletes with concussion and, um, and trying to sort out what is the consequence of head injury over time and what are the changes that occur and, uh, and that sort of thing. But, but we really don't know, we don't know, um, the dose, you know, the dose of head injury that leads to, uh, you know, long-term consequences.
0: Huh, really? After all this time, we still don't yeah, really know. <laughs> <yeah>. No. <laughs> Many questions to be answered. The experts that Michael consulted at the trial confirmed his suspicions that Stewart had suffered some brain damage from, if not his injuries, at least from the car accident.
6: So most of the time, the only thing we know is, okay, people, and sometimes does a person even really know that they lost consciousness, right? Um but that's kind of the sign of a brain injury but most times there's no like uh how should we say physical proof of how severe the brain injury is um especially years down the road so um for example um a lot of things don't will never show up in an x-ray some things will show up in an mri but most things won't most brain injuries will not show up in an mri um in the early two thousands, uh, there was a new procedure starting to be developed called functional MRI little f capital MRI um, that was a little more um, able to detect uh, organic or physical brain uh, brain injury. but Stewart's was so bad that when he was examined uh, with a generic MRI that normally will not detect truly present brain injury, um, it, it revealed that. It mm-hmm. showed the lesions in his brain in a conventional brain MRI, which was is pretty rare. So, for example, we didn't need to go to what they call a PET scan or a SPECT scan or FMRI or any of these more modern ways of... Uh, injecting dyes and all that kind of thing Um, and uh, the amount of his uh, damage uh, to his brain was uh, so severe that uh, an expert testified at the trial um, that he was uh, essentially in the bottom 1% of the population in terms of uh his brain matter uh, what
0: does that mean exactly
6: well it means like for example um there's um um i'll use an analogy to the issue of intellectual disability mental retardation mm-hmm. right so uh uh there's things called standard deviations which is how you measure whether or not person's an average or if they're uh, marginally, uh, uh, intellectually, dis- um, disabled or whether they're severely intellectually disabled. So, um, and that's kind of primarily based on IQ testing and adaptive deficits, um, uh, organic brain damage in terms of missing gray matter, um, um, I mean, just not there. You you could basically see holes in his brain mm-hmm. uh, because of the damage. This is what was apparent, holes or lesions. Yeah. Um, this is what was apparent on the MRI. And um, the statistical analysis by our expert, Dr. Aaron Bigler, from, at the time, uh, Brigham Young University, who is at the forefront of doing quantitative analysis of uh, MRIs and brain injuries um, documented that he was literally in the bottom 1% of the population in terms of the structural integrity of his brain
0: so so like in layman's terms how would that sort of present itself physically the symptoms of, of that kind of damage
6: okay that's a good question so in other words uh what does this matter, or what does it do? So, or, how would it
0: affect you in right. your daily life? Yeah. So
6: basically, uh, in his case, um, his frontal lobes were very damaged, and your frontal lobes control executive functioning, and so they. Uh, so his, the, real life consequences of his brain damage were, uh, he had poor impulse control, uh, he had difficulty. Um, uh, balancing uh, competing considerations Uh, uh, he was perseverative Uh, in other words uh, once he has an idea in his head uh, even if the idea is not working he's gonna keep trying it as opposed to shifting and trying another way around to get to his goal if you will Um, so those are some of the manifestations, if you will.
0: Okay. And if somebody was dealing with these kinds of, you know, brain, this kind of da- brain damage today, what treatment do you think could have could have helped him at that time?
6: I. You know, I do As far as I'm aware, well, let's put it this way. So, first of all, those consequences or manifestations or impacts, essentially causes brain to be like an adolescent yeah okay so um, we've learned uh, in recent years in the last 20 years a lot of brain science has shown us the realities about adolescent brains they, the frontal lobes and the prefrontal cortex are not fully developed which is why teenagers do a lot of impulsive things which is why they don't really weigh the consequences which is why they maybe perseverate about things okay so and the so, what we know for teenagers is not like giving them some magic pill or uh, medical treatment to get them to uh, handle those issues better. It's just we nurture their growth so that they can eventually become more mature and, and handle situations more intelligently. So I would say well, based on what we know now or knew then, Um, that therapeutic uh, intervention would have been best uh, for Stewart. It wasn't anything like, uh, you know, giving him a magic uh, pill or anything. Um, But that's what I would suggest, to put it bluntly.
0: Whatever Stewart was dealing with in terms of brain damage or mental illness, this was compounded by the desire to keep his family's legacy alive. And when he took over his family's factory at a time when USDA regulations were changing— he felt that this was threatened. I reached out to the USDA to get their comment on what happened, and they ultimately declined to participate in the podcast, sending a general statement instead to be attributed to a USDA Food Safety and Inspection Service spokesperson.
7: The deaths of FSIS investigators Gene Hillary and Tom Quadros and California investigator Bill Shaling 21 years ago was a tragedy, and we are forever grateful for the dedication that these investigators showed in their duty to protect public health. FSIS employees are some of the nation's most committed public health servants, and the agency appreciates the role our investigators and inspection personnel play every day to ensure that American families enjoy safe and wholesome meat, poultry, and egg products. FSIS does not tolerate workplace violence and is committed to the safety of all employees. The prevention of workplace violence is a top priority. The agency's Workplace Violence Prevention and Response Program was established to produce and implement actions to guard against similar attacks within FSIS and at federally regulated establishments. Through this program, employees have the opportunity to learn how to protect themselves. The program has a 24-hour toll-free helpline so that employees can report threats and incidents of workplace violence at any time of the day or night. Furthermore, employees have access to a workplace violence liaison and intervention officers at the headquarters and district level. Although the USDA did
0: not respond to my request for comment in regards to this podcast, I was able to get a good amount of information from the court transcript and from Paul and Michael. Both had surprisingly good memories of the case, more than two decades later, although Michael had a more colorful recollection of the events leading up to the shooting.
6: For whatever reason, um, a woman who was recently promoted, uh, I, I believe in professional women, I'm married to professional women, uh, but uh, Jean Hillary, who was one of the victims, and is clearly a victim, Uh, She was killed that day. Um, She had been a career secretary in the USDA through a, you know, if you want to call it an affirmative action program for women, that would be roughly accurate. But she was promoted into an inspector role, and she was acting as the lead compliance officer uh, for the USDA in their investigation of Stewart and she really wanted to shut him down okay and she was as passionate as stewart was about santos Linguisa, she was passionate about shutting him down and it kind of became a little war if you will right i mean it literally erupted in firepower right you know so um she's trying to shut him down and to shut it down would kill him because that's his identity that's his life—that's the only thing he has to live for, really—and um, uh, it, you know, it got to the point where uh, the way they came down on him on that day was very heavy, heavy-handed. Uh, she violated her own instructions from her own boss, who told her and made clear—it's we have it in writing. It was presented at the trial. Um, do not go there to, to give him uh, basically, a, in lay terms, a cease and desist order, if you will, um, without police uh, uh, escort. Do not do that. Do not confront him without police escort because he was known to be a hothead. He was known to, known to be volatile, which was consistent with his impulsivity and brain damage and issues I've already told you about, Right. Uh, and so they knew what they were getting into, uh, but she pushed him anyway.
0: I asked him how the battle between Stewart and Jean really started, as I wasn't able to get any information out of the USDA.
6: Jean Hillary and the USDA, and not just Gene Hillary, but before her, um, telling them, like, you're not in compliance with our rules and our regulations. Um, you're not allowed to operate. Uh, you're not allowed to sell your product. Uh, and um, the theoretical concern was that people could uh, uh, die from eating um, sausage or linguisa because it hadn't been smoked or cooked to a sufficient temperature to kill all potential bacteria. Uh, and Stewart's response was, well, I tried that, I did that at your level, and it just dries out the ling- lingui, it becomes like beef jerky. And our product we sell on the label says, cook before eating. Uh, and so it's meant to be cooked, You're not, it's not meant to be eaten raw. So this is a non-issue. Um, so why are you jerking my chain, essentially? And with a previous director, um, a previous director basically had, if memory serves, had basically said, okay, just as long as that label's there, cook before eating, we're good, or what will be all right. But it became not okay, if you will, and it became more and more demanding. You can't sell your stuff, and... Uh, he was definitely selling his stuff. He was definitely going against their directives, because um, uh, again, as we see a lot of people uh, in society right now in various contexts, it's like, "What I'm doing, there's nothing wrong with it. It's no one's getting hurt. This is the right way to do it. Don't tell me how to do this because if it ain't broke, don't fix it."
0: His account lines up with what information I'd been able to glean from multiple interviews with others who knew about the issues, that Stewart was still smoking the linguiça the way it had always been done, even though regulations had changed since he'd taken over the factory. That, coupled with his refusal to accommodate these updates, created friction. But based on accounts from other sausage makers, like Nick Nicosia and people close to the issue, like Earl Willis's wife Renee, Stewart could have worked with the inspectors. They could have come up with solutions to the problem together. This is part of the inspectors' role to help these businesses continue functioning. I wasn't able to get more information from the USDA, but California's Department of Food and Agriculture did respond to my request for more information about this case. I was able to speak with them over Zoom as the Delta variant was surging in the Bay Area last fall.
8: Uh, My name's Annette Jones. I'm the state veterinarian and the director for animal health and food safety services at the California Department of Food and Agriculture. And I've been fortunate enough to be with the department for uh, just over 17 years. So I joined the department shortly after um, the tragic loss of the inspectors related to the the meat facility.
0: Dr. Jones joined the department that Bill Shalene and Earl Willis had worked for in the years immediately after the shooting at Santos Linguisa.
8: And when I first started, it was, it was fairly somber at work. Um, and you can tell that people really had been um, impacted in a way that really surprised them. You know, we're the Department of Food and Agriculture. We work with farmers and ranchers and processors. And, you know, everybody knows that You just never can anticipate when things go tragically wrong. You know, we all know that that could happen. But I think it was very shocking to um, our culture and our staff members um, when we did suffer those losses. And, um, you know, I can remember my boss relaying that, you know, he just he, he thought, you know, he would never change. He'd never fully recover from it.
0: When he said that he wouldn't be able to recover from it, what did he mean by that?
8: Well, just when you work with people every day, um, you're not just colleagues. You become friends with them. You get to learn a little bit about their families, and then when they lose their life in such an unexpected way, especially associated with work, um, it's just it's hard to shake that. You you know, you always feel an element of loss. You know, you just miss them like anybody would miss miss someone that passes. But you also, there's that that other, you know, is there something we could have done? You know, could we have prevented this? Um, so there's that, you know, that questioning that you carry with you.
0: Dr. Jones' supervisor had more of a working relationship with Bill Shalene, the state inspector who died in the shooting.
8: Did your boss ever kind of tell
0: you a little bit about Bill or any anything about, you know, what he was like to work with?
8: Yeah, actually not just him, but his other colleagues. Um, you know, just a nice guy, you know, always willing to do you know, to go the extra mile, do what needs to be done. Um, yeah, you know, just, uh, you know, kind of a regular guy they really liked working with.
0: Dr. Jones wasn't familiar with the reasoning behind the USDA's decision to bring the state inspectors into the situation as it was before her time. But even though she'd never met Bill herself, nor was she part of the department at the time of the shooting, she attended Stewart's sentencing. I'm curious, why. why did you decide to go to the sentencing hearing?
8: You know, I was thinking about that myself. <laughs> I think I felt like I owed it, um, even though I was a pretty new employee, I think I felt like I just owed it to the family, all the families involved. Um, and it was something I just felt like we should be present for.
0: Was, uh, was anyone else from the department there?
8: I, I'm sure there was, but I don't. I actually can't remember. It was so long ago now. I'm, I'm positive there was. I just don't remember who.
0: OK, yeah, no, that's that's fair. It's been 21 years. <laughs> I mean, what uh, besides it being, you know, a really sobering event, what were your major takeaways from the, the sentencing hearing?
8: It's when, you know, when someone's getting sentenced and it's a life or death sentence for the crime of murder, you know, I read the news this paper or or what do we do now? We look at it on, (laughs) you know, whatever medium we use. But so I follow the news and I've seen, you know, you hear about murder every day. Um, But I personally, you know, I've been fortunate. I haven't really been touched by it other than this event. And you hear, you know, the consequences of crimes like that. But I think until I mean, sobering is the best term because when you see it, the reality is, um, it's difficult to use words to describe it, but it, it is very impactful.
0: Based on the evidence, the witness testimonies, the prosecution's arguments, Stewart was sentenced for all three murders and given the death penalty. During the trial and before his sentencing, Stewart had been held in Santa Rita Jail in Dublin. By the time the trial had rolled around, he was in bad shape he had gained a lot of weight, ballooned in size dramatically, shocking those who knew him when he first appeared in the courtroom. According to Michael Stewart's attorney, this was mainly due to the medical treatment he was receiving for his mental health issues.
6: And he certainly met the standard. He was uh, on medication Mm -hmm. throughout the trial, uh, antipsychotic medications uh, um, to kind of help him uh, address his underlying mental health issues, if you will. Uh, and that definitely seemed to help. It unfortunately had a really bad side effect which caused him to gain over 100 pounds uh, which actually ultimately killed him uh, because he had ballooned up and he died uh, of a coronary embolism, uh, which apparently was related to his uh, largest at the time.
0: Michael couldn't remember what medication Stewart had been prescribed, but knew that it was meant to help with his client's mental decline.
6: He suffered from some serious psych- uh, psychotic breakdowns in custody. I mean, this is somebody who um, certainly enjoyed freedom being outside. His whole life was basically being outside, except for working in the... Uh, in, in the sausage factory because you know being a garbage man sanitation worker that's outside work doing hauling is outside work um, he was trying to develop a property that he was uh, leasing with an eye towards buying it and that was all outside work he was working on the houses that he uh, was trying to buy or, or, uh, or maintain uh, again all outside work um, So he was somebody who was always outside and um, um, being in custody, uh, essentially single cell, kind of drove him even more crazy, if you would. Uh, I mean, he had his organic uh, damage issues, but um, he really lost it. As came out in trial, so I can talk about this. um, He decompensated uh, so much at one point that uh, when he was on suicide watch and not allowed to have clothes, even, and it was just in a smock, um, he was making marbles out of his feces and playing marbles in his cell with his feces with, uh, you know that he had made into marbles. And I don't care what anybody says about anything, if you're doing that, uh, you are messed up. <laughs> okay? So, um, the medication, uh, how shall I say, resulted <laughs> in him no longer being suicidal uh resulted in him in no longer engaging in behaviors like the one i described uh and allowed him to um be calm and sort of placid uh maybe a little bit numb uh, throughout the trial i mean antipsychotics do tend to numb people if you will i mean that's the kind of They're less emotive, if you will.
0: Despite the arguments from the defense about Stewart's past head trauma and his deteriorating mental health, the jurors sided with the arguments put forth by the prosecution, outlined in Paul Hora's closing arguments.
4: The reason we find ourselves here today in this courtroom is because of the actions of one man. And he's sitting right there between his lawyers, Stewart Charles Alexander made deliberate choices, deliberate choices on June 21st, 2000, and those deliberate choices are the reason why we're here. And of course, that fateful day on June 21st, 2000, will probably go down in San Leandro's history as one of its deadliest, certainly dark and dreadful. Now, Mr. Alexander was the only one who pulled the trigger. And he pulled the trigger at least 18 times. At least 18 times. And he did it with three firearms. And he shot at four human beings. Now we know from the evidence that three of those slugs penetrated the flesh of Tom Quadro's. Four of those slugs penetrated the flesh of Gene Hillary. And six of those slugs penetrated the flesh of Bill Shaling, A man he had met for the first time that day. He had only been there just a few minutes. Make no mistake about this, ladies and gentlemen. This was a mass murder. This was a mass murder by ambush. That's how the crime began, and then it ended as a mass murder by execution. That's what happened. Why? Because these four people were just doing their jobs. They were just doing their jobs. A noble job, I might add. A necessary one. We would all like to eat safe food. We would all like to eat wholesome food. We would all like to eat food that's properly labeled. Over the past five and a half months, it's been a long time, I know. You've been presented with mountains of evidence. You've heard evidence sometimes over and over again. And that mountain of evidence that you have before you now clearly proves the defendant guilty of these charges beyond any reasonable doubt. There's no question about it. And of course, The most important piece of evidence you have in this case is thanks to the defendant. The execution is on videotape. You can watch it on TV. It's the defendant's snuff film, in effect. And that film demonstrates his willful, deliberate, and premeditated execution. Simply put, He planned these executions before he did it. Then he executed his plan, literally. And then after it was all said and done, he bragged about it. Now, as a result of those willful and deliberate choices that he made on June 21st, 2000, he finds himself here, charged with the crimes in the indictment. That the judges just read you,
0: Michael Stewart's attorney was frustrated by the death penalty verdict.
6: I mean, let's put it in elementary terms. Um, I don't mean that as an insult, and, and I just no, mean just no, no, in basic terms. So, um, w- according to the law, according to the United States Constitution, according to the conservative United States Supreme Court, which has been running. The, which has been the Supreme Court for the last 50-plus years. Um, no matter how bad the crime, a uh, person should not, cannot automatically be sentenced to death. Instead, you have to look to the whole of their life and just basically decide uh, in, uh, in the vernacular, is this person the worst of the worst? It's not Because you're not just punishing the crime if you give them the death penalty. You're extinguishing their life. So um, it's necessary to look at the person's life and, and prosecutors like to argue, well, this person's an animal. They're not even human anymore. Uh, and conversely, um, the defense likes to try, the job is to try to show the jury the, human, the humanity of their client, right, the, the human values. And so the truth, as I said in the very beginning about my allegiance to the truth, uh, the truth is that Stewart wasn't a cold-blooded executioner he was a very damaged individual um, who um, acted reactively uh, impulsively after he was provoked and the suggestion was made to him to get it pull out a you know go out there and shoot and the first shot was in fact a warning shot the first shot was into the ceiling that the video shows that. Um, and this was in response to people, or one person in particular, who was literally trying to kill his identity, not physically kill him, but kill his existence.
0: For the families of Stewart's victims, it was a small consolation. According to Renee, the wife of the only survivor, who we met in episode five, there was simply a sense of relief that the ordeal was done. I
9: was relieved that Ogle's behavior didn't make anybody believe the truth.
0: What do you mean by behavior? He's just...
9: His mannerisms, just the way that he talked, it just made it he was like trying to blame the victims.
5: Mm. Okay.
0: So that was not a good thing. Renee is talking about Michael Ogle, Stuart's lawyer. His defense rubbed Renee the wrong way by arguing that the inspectors had pushed Stuart to the point of snapping. She felt that Michael had been unfair to the people that Stewart had murdered.
9: And then as soon as I heard, I called Earl and told him what the verdict was.
0: How did he react?
9: He's glad the whole thing was over.
5: Yeah.
9: And only concern was what was his sentence going to be.
5: Yeah.
9: And we were relieved when he died. Yeah because no more taxpayer dollars being wasted on this person.
0: That's right. Stewart died before his sentence was fully carried out. While he was sentenced in late 2004, he died about a year later while on death row at San Quentin. Officially, the cause was a pulmonary embolism, likely due to his significant weight gain. Unofficially, I heard from one source, which has not been verified. A guard sat on Stewart's chest to subdue him when he was, quote, acting up, and Stewart's heart couldn't take the pressure. San Quentin's public information officer did not respond to my request for comment, and I couldn't find a formal complaint or any documentation to support this claim. Either way, Stewart passed away at only 44 years old. Just like that, the Sausage King was gone, and his factory went with him. The nearly 80 year legacy he wanted to protect was undone by his own actions, gone without so much as a single sausage left behind. Next time on The Sausage King, we finally meet our mystery sausage maker, who still makes the Santos Linguisa with the factory's original recipe. We'll uncover just how he came into possession of this recipe and what his connection was to Stewart while speaking with him, we will learn more about Stewart's state of mind throughout his life and just before the killings.
3: I, I knew Stewart had a problem. Mental.
5: Yeah.
3: My, uh, my pay grade isn't high enough to accuse anybody of being anything except the fact that I've been around a long time and I've seen a lot. And uh, symptoms are a big thing to me. You put symptoms together, it, it kind of tells your story, doesn't it?
0: And... We also just might have uncovered some of the skeletons lurking in the Santos family closet. He had a temper, right?
3: I've never seen his temper. He grabbed his mother a couple of times by the neck. I wasn't there. He would have done it in front of me. But I heard about that. So he did lose his cool a couple of times.
0: The Sausage King is researched, written, and narrated by me, Natalia Gravich. Production, sound design, and editing by Matt Pittman. Matt Pittman, Eric Brooks, and Don Bastida are editorial producers. Special thanks to Margie Schaefer, Don Bastida, and Bijan Siavoshi for voice acting in this episode. Cover art by Dre Ira Barron. Social media by Greg Wong. Jennifer Selig is brand manager of KCBS Radio in San Francisco. The Sausage King is a production of KCBS Radio and Odyssey. Subscribe and get every episode on the Odyssey app or wherever you listen to podcasts.